There's Jimmy and Diane, here's Ben and Francis, and I actually hear the song sung in a way that encourages me. When I hear them singing, they're singing like right behind me, and it actually encourages me a great deal because I hear the words being sung in a way that I can't sing them. And so it's very interesting if you take a moment, just listen to what happened here as we sung these uh, special songs of the Lord. I hope you're encouraged as you hear each other sing. We're going to be doing this for eternity. This is a time, a precursor to that time, we'll be singing at Christ's table with his presence. So I hope you enjoy this time with each other. Obviously, it's for the Lord and always for the Lord, but that doesn't mean we can't enjoy each other's company and uh, fellowship uh, together. Uh, going through our events through the week here. This is our fire drill last um, week. I apologize about that. What it turned out to be was there's a leak right above the hallway in a snack room. And the roof dripping onto the fire alarm triggers it off. So these little drips, drip, drip, drip. It thought it was smoke or something getting there. So we have to fix something in the roof in order to fix the fire alarm. So something we have to pray about to get that fixed. But thank you for your patience last week. We cut short Alan's time, and I apologize about that from his uh, workshop. A lot of you told me you, you wish you could have heard him longer. We'll invite him back again so you can hear more of his sharing. You that um, celebrate Reformation Day, it's kind of turned into our day of dress up. Uh, this is a very interesting costume from the ACFers. The people on your left, Jessica and Crystal, where you can't really see it, but it says beep and boop on their hats. <laughs> beep means it's not safe to cross more wood. When it's Beep, booping, is that correct? And it, is it backwards? Oh, it's okay to cross when you hear these. Okay, I see. <laughs> and then Crystal's wearing it. It is okay to cross the walk signal. And so they got that while Abby won the uh, contest of the best costume of the rabbit from Alice in Wonderland. And then the Rise guys really went out. And you saw what the Rise guys did. Um, Rise guys really went out on Wednesday night. No Bible study that night. And... Um, Liddy and Dorson organized pumpkin painting uh, contests here and really thank Liddy and Dorson for all the work they did because it's a very special night, a time for everyone to enjoy company with each other. And again, we talk about fellowship and enjoying time together. That's very special. When I see you guys doing it, it really brings me great joy. Whether you're doing board games or you're getting together for these costume things or uh, Harvest Festival, that really is special to me. And I hope you don't pass those times over lightly. Those are special times that we can enjoy fellowship with each other, and I think that's very important we continue to do those things. Anyways, I'm going back to our sermon uh, from last week. Last week we talked about Christ's first miracle. What was that again? Water into wine, right? Water into wine. When the wedding ran out of wine, Mary, Christ's mother, says they have no wine. And Christ's like, hey, what does that have to do with me? Woman, why are you concerning about these things? And I was trying to describe there a break in Christ's uh, um, ministry. At first, he was ministering to his parents. He would take care of them. He would listen to their authority. And now Christ is saying, you know what? I love you. I respect you. But now my heart and my mind and my ministry focuses completely upon the Lord's will, my Father's will, and my Father's will um, oversees what you want me to do as a son. Told you about my wedding, or not my wedding, Mara's wedding. I felt like it. I was giving away Mara where she was under our authority, 
And Julie and I, family, and now she goes into a new household with Phil, and she, her allegiance now changes that way. And all this was done uh, for this purpose. For this was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Every one of his signs that Christ does shows how wonderful and supernatural and glorious Christ is. And for what purpose? So his disciples believed in him. Anytime you see one of Christ's signs, anytime you see a miracle, it's a wonderful thing to help that person, help those group of people. But ultimately, it's so that we believe in him. And I told you the thesis for John, John's thesis comes from John 20. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. It's that we know that Christ is the Son of God, and knowing that, you believe in it and have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of this whole book. We're going to spend a long time going through this book, and I hope you remember and live in a way that you believe that Christ is the Son of God and believing you have life in his name. Bless you. Okay, let's, um, we always stand uh, for worship. We stand for reading God's word. We stand for reading God's word because this is giving reverence to God's word. It's our guidebook. It's our rule book. It gives us direction in our life. So whenever we read God's word here, we'd like you to stand. Let's go ahead and stand together as we read it together. Let's read. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who had pigeon, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. <clears throat> His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Father, thank you for this very special day. We already had an opportunity to remind ourselves through song, through worship, what a great God you are. How you loved us and how in turn we're to love each other and to love you. Thank you for sending Christ that demonstrated this in every aspect of his life. Whatever he was doing, it's always to show his love for you and his love for us. I pray these things in your name. Amen. May be seated. So what you were just reading here is a very interesting introduction here because it told that Christ was going to the Passover. Before, he was at a very small town. Where was the wedding? Do you guys remember a wedding at Cana? Cana is a really small town. It's probably uh, just a small gathering of family and friends at this wedding. It was his first miracle but this miracle was done in a very almost private setting. It's just an intimate setting with his family and friends. 
But scripture is very clear, bless you, that now something's changing. Christ is going to do something very public. It's going to be at a very big arena. So when he goes to Passover in Jerusalem, it's a big, big deal. Um, Passover, as you remember, was what celebration? You're celebrating? Yeah, so it's this idea that, Christ, uh, that God brought his people out of slavery, out of bondage, heads them toward the promised land, does everything possible to free his people, and every year, Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this. It's one of their biggest festivals. Josephus feels, or um, kind of wrote that Jerusalem probably had 200,000 people in population there. But in his documentation, he said almost a million people would be at Jerusalem during this time of Passover. I mean, it's huge. It's five times as many people that would be there. And where would all these people be centered? They'd all be coming to the temple. The temple was the focal point of this whole celebration. So not only come to Jerusalem, but to the temple. And where's Christ heading? Where does Christ do this incredible act? It's at the temple. So he's doing something very public and something's very much changing. Like last week we talked about his authority to his family. Now his allegiance to his father. He's going from a private setting now to a very public setting. So people from all over the land would come here um, and that's why there's oxen and sheep and pigeon and money changers. Uh, one of the reasons, and I don't understand this completely myself, I'm not sure if I know why they're doing pigeons and doves, because they should be doing sheep. But my sense is that they traveled so far, they couldn't bring a sheep from them. Well, all over Israel, it would be too far for them to bring sheep. So when I got to the temple, my suspicion is some people couldn't afford to buy the sheep or the oxen, the big ones. So what they could afford to buy was pigeons or doves. So there's all kinds of sacrifices you could do. Um, I suppose if your heart is in the right place, that, that's fine. I think God would still accept it, but I don't think everyone could afford it. And so as a service here, they would provide all different kinds of animals here that you could buy when you got here because you traveled very far. And people also traveling very far, um, possibly from other countries, they would have to exchange their money. They don't all have the currency that would work. And this also, I'm afraid I don't understand, there might have been a temple currency. It's possible you had to exchange your money in and use temple currency as well. So these guys would provide another service inside the temple where you exchange your money so you could uh, either pay the temple tax or buy the sacrifice animal. And in many senses, it was to help the people. But it was interesting too because Josephus records something else here which not really recorded in scripture, but also at the temple, not only the money changers, not only the people selling animals, but there's between 200 and 300 temple police. That when you have a million people coming into the city, and I don't know, maybe 100,000 coming through the temple all the time, it'd be very difficult to control the crowds. It'd be very difficult to have orderly sacrifice. Very difficult to make things run smoothly so the Sanhedrin, or the people in charge, had temple police that would actually make sure they would run smoothly. And I want you to tuck that away in the back of your mind because they're probably all there. The money changers, the people selling animals, and these temple police, Pharisees and Sanhedrin, would also be at the temple. So it's a great mix of all kinds of people here at the temple. So what did you read this one? You guys know the story. You guys 
are very familiar with this, that making a whip of cords, he drove, who did he drive out? All out of the temple. The sheep, the oxen, all the animals are taken out. He poured over the coins, the money changers, and overturned their tables. <clears throat> so everything that was set up for the people was thrown out. The animals, the money changers, the tables, all the stuff there that was set, Christ took them and overturned them all. So I want you to think about that for a minute because it's kind of an interesting scenario. What I was telling you is that all these people from all over Israel, these what they term themselves as holy pilgrims, were coming to do what? They're coming to worship God. They're coming to sacrifice. They're coming probably dressed up and saying, you know what, this is my best. I'm ready to do something great for God. I'm going to come all this distance. I'm going to buy the right animal. I'm going to you know, give to the temple. And it's, you would see the Jews at the best. This is the most that they could do. This is the most holy that they could be. This is giving their very Sunday best for the Lord, their Sabbath best for the Lord. And what does Christ say? Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house. He, he, he basically almost throws them all out. So man's best, and what we think is so great, and what we're offering to the Lord, may not be what we think it is. When Christ gets down to the heart of the issue, this was not what Christ wanted. It was wrong. And, it, and it's easy for us to think that we're in the right, we're doing the right things, but when Christ really looks deep in our heart, we may not be doing the right thing. So what's happening here? Christ is showing anger. He's showing rage. And you think, you know what? Okay, the Messiah, you know what he's going to be mad about? He's going to be mad about those guys. He's going to be mad at those Republicans or those Democrats or whoever side you're on. He's, when Christ comes, he's going to be mad at that those Romans, right? That's who Christ is going to be angry at. When Christ comes back, I can't wait it because he's going to take those guys out. Isn't it interesting in this story that he takes out the Jews? He's angry with the Jewish people. He's angry with the people who are in his father's house sacrificing. Isn't that strange that when we're trying to do our best, we're standing and thinking, man, I'm in the right place. Look at me. Look how good I am. Christ is saying, that's not what I wanted. And he's overturning things and he's throwing the people out and he's cleaning house. And it's not out there. It's in here. And, and if you understand what I'm saying here, we're getting to the heart of today's message. That the pollution of God's house, the pollution and the corruptness that exists here, Christ has divine fury. He's angry. We don't see Christ angry too often in Scripture. But this is one of those times when he starts his ministry. When he says, you know what? This is the first time you're going to see me in public. The first thing he does is clear out the corruption. Clear out the sin. Clean out all the things that don't belong there. You want to be holy? You want to be right before me? You want to do what honors my Father? Start clearing it out. Not out there. We keep thinking the problem's out there. It's those guys out there. No, God is saying that's not the problem not out there. The problem is right here in God's house. Right here. I want you to remember that. So, if you know scriptures well, you know that Christ also does this a second time. He does it in Luke 19. He starts his ministry by cleaning out the temple. 
And he, he doesn't end his <clears throat> ministry, but it's one of the final things he does that week of Passover. He does the same thing three years later. He cleans out the temple. All these guys come back into the temple in these three years. They repopulate that area, and he cleans it out again. But what I want you to remember here, number one, is that there's unforgettable power being demonstrated here. Remember who's here. It's the center of all the activity. There's 200 temple guards here. The Sanhedrin's here. The money changers are here. All these people who are very strong, who are very capable. I mean, if you made a disturbance in the temple, I think you'd get thrown out pretty fast. I mean, if there's a million people here trying to get in, they designed this so it flows smoothly. So it's make you stop and think, how did one guy, one guy throw out all the animals, one guy overturn all the tables, how did one guy not get stopped? I mean, hopefully in this room, if someone came in disrupting, we'd be able to stop him. You know, and we're not a million people, but if there's a million people that you'd think they'd be able to stop Christ. And this is not recorded as one of his official miracles, but I would say, yes, it's a miracle that no one stopped Christ. When Christ has this ability to show unbelievable power, and he is on his Father's will, nothing can stop him. It's an unforgettable power demonstrated inside the temple. I'm going to call it another sign. It's not one of the, again, one of the seven miracles of John, but it's another sign that shows when Christ is doing something, we are unable to stop it. Which leads me to the second point here, is that what was he doing? He was showing judgment. Yes, we know Christ as compassionate. Yes, we know Christ is gracious. Yes, we know Christ is one that forgives all of our sins, absolutely. But there's other times when we understand that he's exhibiting judgment. The judgment here. And a judgment is something I don't want you to overlook. That when he comes, no one can stop him. When he comes to judge, we say, hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. You got to look at these circumstances. No, no. When Christ comes and he is doing his work, which at the end of time will be that right throne of judgment, no one's going to be able to stand up to him. Just like no one could stand up to him at the temple when he's exhibiting judgment and he's saying this is wrong and you're going to have to pay for whatever sins in your life, whether Christ pays for it or it's your own, no one can stop Christ. And when that judgment comes, it's unstoppable. It's a precursor to Christ's second coming when there will be judgment and there won't be any more time to make amends. That time is coming when all of us will face that judgment. So he's judging here an entire religious system. The corruptness, the um, profit that was being made, the idea that you're in God's house but you're thinking about how can it benefit me? Thinking about what I'm doing and it's all about how far I traveled and what I'm giving the Lord. Christ is saying it's wrong. Have your focus, have your heart, your soul, your mind and all your strength upon God and others. So, that's a story you guys know pretty well. And, and I think every one of us understands that story. Let me do one more point on this story here. This is how it closed. What sign do you show for doing these things? What does he say? Okay, so he, he, he was unstoppable. He cleaned out all the temple, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, whoever. They say, hey, why do you do these things? What sign are you going to show? And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
And then the Pharisees reply, or Sanhedrin replies, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? It's a good question. Um, Christ saying, destroy this. I'm going to show you who I am, the power I demonstrate, and the people in power saying, hey, you can't do it. It took us 46 years to build it. There's no way you can do it. But here it is again. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, this is the third time I'm saying it this morning. Why are these signs being done? Why does Christ clean out the temple? Why does Christ turn the water into wine? What's the point of all these things? Yes, it's to clean out the temple. Yes, it's to give them wine for their wedding. But it's to believe who Christ is, the Son of God, and believe that he can bring us life. It says it right here. He believes scripture. It took this disciples, kind of like us, it takes us a long time to believe these things. But three years later, the disciples realize, hey, remember that? It happened three years ago at the temple. Christ was talking about his own body. He was talking about us seeing his own body being resurrected. After three days being dead, he's resurrected. So it took them a while, but they understood that cleansing the temple really was about cleansing the temple, absolutely. But there's a second meaning that Christ is kind of hiding here and kind of being a little mystic about, but he's saying, this temple is my body. He's speaking about the temple as his body. And because of that sign, they believe in Christ. Okay, so again, our thesis, but these are written, everything's written, everything that Christ did, so that we know that he's the son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. So that will cover, in some ways, what happened in the temple. So, unfortunately for you guys, that's only my first sermon. I have a second sermon coming now. Okay, so that's the first sermon about the cleansing of the temple. There's a second sermon hitting in here, and I hope you hang in there with me. Is it? You have to shift gears now. So we, we covered Christ cleaning out the temple, why he did it. But there's something hidden inside here I don't want to miss. And I think it's important that we spend time going over this. Because this is something that we often brush over, but I think we can spend some time on. So again, switch gears. Here's the second part of the sermon. In verse 17, it says, For the zeal for your house has consumed me. Well, that's kind of interesting. Um, this comes from, you see here, it comes from Psalm 69, when King David felt the Israelites were not respecting God's house, that there's disorder in God's house. David was very angry with the Israelites. And the same thing here again in John chapter 2. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And what Christ does, you know what? I love my father's house so much, I'm going to throw all of you out. I'm going to take all the animals. I'm going to take everything else. I'm throwing it out. And this is where you have to kind of jump with me a little bit and try to follow me here. But he was speaking about the temple and his body. There's a parallel here when he's talking about zeal for your house has consumed me. I'm talking about the temple. I'm talking about the tabernacle. I'm talking about the holy of holies. Yes, there's physical things there. But Christ is taking us a little bit deeper here. There's another meaning going on here because he's alluding here that what he was really talking about is the temple of his body. So you think about the externals. You think about Christ is concerned about the and he is. Um, Those things are important. But he's also talking about 
his own body. And also, he's talking about our own body, our own heart. We think about the temple now. We think about God's house. Uh, We don't think now so much about the external. And I appreciate all of you guys. I don't know. Jimmy's been working every week to make this look nicer and nicer. You can't see up in the ceiling anymore. Um, Some of you are spending time here um, every Sunday. I'm watching you guys clean and keep your areas clean. Um, Helping with the ceiling tiles that have fallen down in the hallway. We're taking care of God's house. That's important. That's really important. But there's something deeper going on here. And it's this idea that we are now the temple where God dwells. We are now the household that God is building together. So the external is important. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know what? We didn't have a fall cleaning this year. Usually you guys come and you help clean up the church every fall. We rake the leaves, do the mulch. We didn't have it this year. We're going to have it in the spring. So think about that. That's important. But even more important is what it is, is our identity as the temple where Christ dwells. Our heart is his home. And for the rest of the sermon today, I'm going to talk about that. I don't know what you feel about who your identity is. Um, You guys might look at me. That's my dentist up there who preaches on Sunday. Um, I was talking, I don't know if he's here this morning. I won't not say his name, but he, I was talking to ACF and he goes, you know, Gordon, people identify me as the athletic one. And they want me on their sports teams. When they have IM pickup teams, they want this young man on his team. I think of Jimmy and Diane now. I think about people who bike every Saturday. If you want to go biking, find Jimmy and Diane. They'll take you biking every Saturday. I think about Adam and Louise. I think about youth pastors who are also bodybuilders. I mean, that's kind of interesting. Right? That's, that's interesting. Um, think about our AV table. I think about those who are dedicated to come here every Sunday at 9 Sometimes early as eight to set up our AV table. Some of you are designers and researchers. Some of you are students, car self ACFers. Some of you go to Pitt, CMU. Some of you are Pine Richland, North Allegheny. You say, this is how I identify myself. This is who I am. I'm a husband of this person. I'm a wife of this person. These are my children. You identify yourself. How is it that we're identified in an eternal sense? You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. For us that know the Lord, this is our true identity. This is who we really are. You're citizens. Citizens are something that transcends time, transcends your age, transcends anything that you've done or will do. You're citizens because of what Christ has done for you. What Christ has done for us make us citizens of heaven. Christ has redeemed us. He's paid the price. He's our propitiation. And really, what we're seeing about this morning, it's interesting because Christ entered enemy territory and he rescued us. We were slaves. In some ways, I want you to think about we're hostages to sin. We are slaves to sin. And Christ paid the price and rescued us from from being hostages and brought us into citizenship into his kingdom. He paid whatever price was necessary. He did whatever it was that was enslaving us. We've been talking a little bit about the corruption at the temple, about the greed and the profit. And Christ says, you know what? I'm clearing that out now. I'm going to rescue you from that. I'm going to take you away from all that.
because you're my citizens. You guys might not know this, but this is an interesting thing here. This is for U.S. citizens, PPD-30. It's a U.S. policy regarding hostage-taking abroad. PPD-30 reaffirms the U.S. government's dedication to achieving the safe recovery of U.S. nationals taken abroad. So if you're kidnapped abroad and you're a U.S. citizen, it commits to the government uh, to working in a coordinated manner using all instruments of national power to safely recover hostages that our government will use all instruments of national power to recover you. That's why I always carry your passport when you're traveling abroad. Hey, I'm an American. As you take me hostage, you do something to me, the government promises to use all instruments of national power to safely recover you from danger, from being a hostage. And what I was describing to you, that's being a citizen of the United States, which is a good thing, I think. But being a citizen of heaven is even greater because you're with a body of saints. You're fellow members of the same household. And Christ promises to do whatever possible to rescue us from sin. He's done it once on a cross. That's finished. That's done. That's over. If you're a citizen of heaven, your identity is now changed. You're part of the kingdom. But he continues to do it. Just like he cleans out the temple. He says, you know what? That money doesn't belong here. Those animals don't belong here. Those attitudes don't belong here. As citizens of heaven, he continues to restore and make us into the men and women that we're designed to be. He's cleaning out all that sin. Yes, you're mine. Yes, I love you. But whatever sin is in your heart, whatever's there, I'm cleaning it out. Just like I'm cleaning out the temple, because you're a citizen of heaven, I'm making you ready to live with me. I'm going to make you like Christ. I'm going to make you exactly the way that I designed you to be. It's a painful process, if you know that. It's hard for us. It's difficult. But look what he's doing. It's built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. All these men and women who come before us, they're laying a foundation. Christ himself is the cornerstone. What is he building here? What is Christ building here? In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into the holy temple of the Lord. You guys are now the holy temple. You guys are the ones that Christ died for. He's the propitiation, absolutely. But you are the temple now where God is cleaning out all the junk. He's saying, that doesn't belong in my temple. That doesn't belong in your heart. Those things that you're so involved in and so important to you, those are idols. Those things are keeping you from being the person you need to be. There's greed, and there's lust, and there's anger, and there's pride, anxiety, there's selfishness. God's saying, you know what? That does not belong in the temple anymore. And he'll do everything he can to overturn it. He'll do everything possible to take it away from you. Whatever it needs, Christ in divine fury, in divine anger, is doing this for his temple. We are now his temple, and he's doing it in every one of your lives. If you know the Lord, I guarantee he's doing this in your life in some way or some form. Christ is doing this in your life. So, I'm making another jump. You guys got to kind of follow me here. So, what we're talking about is that um, whoever eats other bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let's examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In a few moments, we're going to take of the bread and the cup. And when we come to this table, 
We come before the Lord, just like we come to Passover. All these Jews coming to Passover feast, we're coming to another type of Passover. We're going to come to this table. And if you're not worthy to come to this table, or you're drinking or eating in an unworthy manner, there's consequences to you. And these consequences, look at it here. For anyone who eats and drinks without... Um, I'm sorry. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, it's special when you come here to the table. Special Sunday. You're coming to this table and you're not examining yourself. Say, hey, I'm okay. I'm done my Sunday best. I'm here at the Lord's house. I just deserve this just like every other time I've done this. You're fooling yourself. Because God knows your heart. God knows you are now his temple. He's saying, don't come to this table unprepared. Don't come to this table lightly because there's judgment involved here. It goes on a little bit further here. For if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You have an opportunity now to say, you know what? Yes, that stuff's in my heart. Yes, I need to clean this out. Yes, there's things I haven't given to the Lord. Now's the time to do it. But when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Why is Christ doing this? Why is Christ showing divine fury? Why is he so upset with the idols in our life? Why is he so upset we haven't given us, given him our whole life? So that we're not condemned. He loves us so much. He says, you know what? That stuff is bad for you. I know you enjoy it. I know there's pleasure in it. I know these things are pulling you away from me. But it's not good for you. And he takes those things away. It's a form of discipline. So that we might not be condemned. Okay, that's my last point. I know I'm going over a lot of things. Just follow me. It's my last thing I'm going to say this morning about this. Discipline is not to pay us back. It's not like, you did that, I'm going to get you back. That's our system. We try to get people back. We try to get revenge. Discipline is not to pay us back. Discipline is to bring us back. If God is overturning the tables in your heart, if God is cleaning out the corruption in there, if God is pulling things out there so deeply, man, that hurts. It's not to hurt us back. It's not like getting even with us. God's disciplining us to bring us back to him. The heart that is. We, we sang the first song we sang this morning, I'll bring your heart back to Christ. When the music fades, when all that goes back, it, it's all about our heart coming back to Christ. And if you're being disciplined right now, it's to bring your heart back to Christ, to bring the temple back to what it's designed to do. Honor the Lord. To love God and to love others. So, that's where I kind of left my sermon. And for the last two days, I've been thinking about what it is I'd be able to share with you this morning about overturning tables, about corruption, about sin in my heart. And I I thought about all the things that God has done in my life, and he certainly overturned a lot of tables in my heart. God has really broken my heart in many ways, many times. And some of you know my story about those things. Um, And I thought about sharing some of those stories with you, but I decided to share something different. It's actually where I'm standing right right now, here in front of you. This is not my desire necessarily to be up here. This is not something that I long for and say, boy, I wish I could be up here Sunday 
preaching to you, but you know, Adam helps me a great deal preaching, and I appreciate that. But I, I feel that this is a discipline that God has given to me now. And probably for many of you, you feel very busy. You feel like, yeah, just getting through a day, right? When you get home from school, you get home from work, you feel, yeah, this is very hard for me. I'm very tired. I just need to rest. And, and I, I think that's appropriate. Um, but for the last 18 months, I feel like God is saying, Gordon, you don't love me enough yet. There's still areas in your life that you haven't given to me. And I know, Lord, I'm doing enough. You know, I help with ACF, I help with RISE. You know, I, I, I'm trying to love Julie and love my kids as best I can. And God says, no, that is a good start, but there's much more that you haven't learned about loving me. There's much more that you can give that you haven't given yet. And I argue with the Lord, I say, yeah, no, I, I don't think there's much more, Lord. I, I, I don't watch too much football anymore. I'm not, you know, looking at cards too much on the internet. But he says, no, Gordon, there's more things for you to give. And so over the last 18 months, he's been um, challenging me. He's been pushing me, like, Gordon, you have time. Um, there's an epic retreat coming up in December. And Julie and I are praying, well, should we go? Should we go? You know what? Yes, I should go. There's another retreat. That's actually Rebecca's home church in, um, in June. Should I accept going to the retreat? And I said, yes, I should go. And what I'm finding is that God who has brought me this far, God has been faithful so far. And again, you know some of those broken areas in my life continues to break my heart that I don't trust him enough yet. I think it's all about me, like how much I can do and what I'm capable of and how much I can give up. And I'm missing the picture of who God is and how great God is and how much more he can do. And I limit him by my own pride and my own inability to see God as God. When I see God as God, oh man, there's so much more that can come out. There's so much more to be done. There's so many people I didn't speak with yet. There's so many dinners I didn't have with you guys. There's so many times I haven't prayed with you guys. There's so much more to be done yet. And I'm looking forward to that time of being stretched even further. Of being pushed even further. Not because Gordon is great. I'm very weak. I'm very tired. I'm very frail. And I want to give up in many ways. But in another sense, that's looking at the wrong place. The right place to look is how much God can do. And how much God says, you are my citizen. You're a fellow heir of the kingdom. I've sustained saints before you who've done way more than you've done. And you don't think I can do this in your life? That's how God is cleaning out the tables in my heart. To trust him. And to know that there's much more to be done. Much, much more. And I look forward to it. I hope I don't dread it and feel tired. Like, ah, this is so hard for me. It's so wonderful and a privilege to see God work through these things and see God do incredible things that I could never do, never be capable of doing. And I hope you experience God's discipline the same way. Some of you, I know your stories. and Some of you, I know what God's doing. And, it, and I know it's hard. You're bristling against like, I don't like that. It hurts. This is painful. And I don't want to give up that sin. And I don't really want to turn this over to the Lord. And I don't really like spending time with these people, whatever it might be. But that's the discipline of the Lord, turning these things over 
and stop thinking about yourself and what you want and what makes you look good. And really looking at the Lord in a whole new light and seeing what He's doing and His power and the signs that show that always point back to Christ and the great things He's doing. And I'm looking and watching as you guys have these victories in your life. That's part of my victory. When I see you guys succeed and trust the Lord more, that brings me great joy. It energizes me. When I watch you guys study God's word more and wrestle with sin, say, I'm not going to do the same more and become mature men and women, that's what energizes me. I'm like, man, I would gladly serve longer and longer to watch you guys turn into the men and women that God designed you to be. That's wonderful. And I hope you find that in this body that will continue to happen as we put Christ first. Think less about ourselves. We must decrease. We're going to study this in a couple of weeks so he can increase. But we're turning over the idols in our own life, the sin in our own life, and thinking less about ourselves, more about the Lord. Okay, let's pray.